Good evening. I'm Bobby London, and welcome to On Resistance. A lot has happened since our last election show. Bernie Sanders' political revolution has officially endorsed Hillary Clinton, and in almost coordinating timing, the media is beginning to turn on Trump. Almost as if they were only giving him credence to help bolster the necessity of a Clinton nomination. But we're not conspiracy theorists over here at OR. That would be ludicrous to believe that the media was working with the DNC and the Clinton campaign to push her nomination. I would need actual proof and actual evidence to believe that. Oh, wait. If you haven't heard, email leaks have been released stating the DNC intention of doing just that, leaving some to believe that Bernie Sanders' campaign was only intended to energize the base for a Clinton endorsement. Every time I'm browsing the internet, every single Politico headline is essentially stacked towards Clinton and has been for quite a while. So now people are kind of forced to admit through Bernie's own mouth that he's conceding or he's not conceding, but he will concede. And that all these speeches and everyone's on the edge of their seat. But really, Politico and other news sources have been announcing for like six months now that Hillary Clinton's the nominee. So it's just kind of this telltale heart of the mainstream political system where there are candidates put forward for selection. And, you know, they kind of create an entire market around these candidates. And it's kind of like observing a sports game where, you know, there are these different opponents and we think we can maybe make a commentary on what the referee says, but we don't really have any input in that game. That game has already been, you know, the players have already been chosen. We're just really essentially watching. But the key thing about elections is to get people invested in the outcome and to make people feel like they are actually participating in something when it's inherently really exclusionary. And even by the party's own rules, even within the party system, there's a lot of concerns about the process. But what's frustrating to me is that these concerns are not new. Like These are concerns that come up every single election. And um, we actually are so consumed with you know making the system a more accessible process that really keeps us engaged when... I mean, I'm just kind of, I can't believe Clinton, I just can't believe it. It's like one of those things where you were hoping it wasn't going to happen, but you knew it was going to happen. Like, we all knew that Hillary was going to be the candidate since Bush was in office, you know? Like, she was supposed to be the candidate in 2008, and, you know, she waited her eight years for a while. President Obama was in office, and it's her time, you know, the oligarchs have spoken, and she has done everything she could to earn their vote while in the State Department using her office, you know, as a way to fund the Clinton Foundation or what the recent leaks also came out and said that she was pushing for the invasion of Syria for the aid of Israel, which we can only expect more wars from her when she becomes president, because let's be honest, she will become president. Trump is just Trump is just there, but we will not have a Trump president. Maybe I'll eat my words, but I doubt it. And this process to, like, look at all these people who felt like they were in a political revolution with Bernie Sanders and all of that energy and for it to just be, like, nothing. If Bernie wanted to, if Bernie was really about this, like, you know, against the establishment and the status quo and blah, 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 then he would run as an independent candidate. He has the perfect opportunity to run as an um, independent candidate, but he didn't. He so quickly fell in line with the Democratic Party. He went to the little, you know, the sit-in 
showed his support for the gun control law that is basically going to increase racial profiling and criminalization and Islamophobia and add people to a terrorist watch list. And he, your socialist, supposedly leftist darling, is supporting that and isn't supporting a hawkish neoliberal like Hillary Clinton. So really, when we talk about options, it's all a facade. When we talk about voting, it's all a facade. It has been decided. It's been decided and chosen for us. And we saw that the primaries in California, primary the night before when the media basically just decided to announce that Hillary had won perfectly in timing for a primary that maybe he could have won. The votes are still out. Not all the votes have even been counted. The Democrats have done the same things that the Republicans did in 2000 with the Al Gore election, and no one's calling it out. And that is why the Democratic Party, to me, is more dangerous than the Republican Party, because liberals in the sink of ideology will not say anything, will defend and make excuses for a party who really is the same as these other corporate elites that we're supposed to think are like the real evil ones. But really, there is no lesser than evil. Even if there was a lesser evil, they're both evil. So is there really a choice in that? Yeah, and I've been thinking about the the lesser than two evil, something that keeps being repeated since I've kind of grown up in, in this country and like hearing about the very polarized, divisive politics, which are very strategically done so, because if you see pictures of these politicians at parties, they're like schmoozing and they're all socialites with each other as part of the ruling class. But when it comes down to election season and um, how they manipulate um, their constituencies or the people that they target to vote, because you are being targeted to vote um, very, very strategically, you're being marketed to vote a certain way, then they like play like they don't know each other and they're so wildly different. But I think that it's like, Democrats are almost a more effective evil because they they don't command as much dissent because people look within the binary of left right and say right is worse left is not bad. So if there's a leftist if there's a not a leftist president if there's a democrat president you know people are like more trusting a little bit liberals are a little more trusting and so I feel like that gives more leeway to actually pass a lot of policies with less resistance. So they're the party with less resistance. Uh, when when there's a right-wing president. Although I remember under Bush, there being a lot of silencing of liberalism. But even then, there was like large anti-war protests. And how effective were those? Were they effective in stopping? We don't get to vote on war. So that's why a lot of people concentrate resources on the president. Same thing with the Supreme Court. We don't get to vote for who's on the Supreme Court. So a lot of energy gets funneled into these presidential elections. But this is a war economy. Uh, the United States economy is built on um, destruction and violence here domestically through absolute control and authoritarianism and policing, but also through consistent invasion and destabilization of, of countries in the Middle East, of Mexico, of in Latin America. There are more examples. The position of the president is one position in, a, in an entire structure that the structure thrives off of, of war. So you know, Hillary's going to do well. You know, Hillary's well qualified to be um, a warmonger. In my head, one side note, it would be very, very, very telling if America elects a Trump presidency and goes far right, like Britain continues to move far right. And then we have these two powers 
that carry a lot of influence in terms of how they have colonized and enforced global fascism shifting dramatically to the right, which I think is happening regardless of who becomes president. Like, I think we are shifting to the right, even if Hillary Clinton becomes president. That's actually probably a good tell. Leaning right wing Hillary would get the liberal kind of Democrat endorsement. And then I also think there's a lot of truth to the fear-mongering around Trump in terms of like how racist he is and how open he is. But he is very provocative and tries to say things with a shock value. And he isn't much different than the previous presidents that have run the United States before, like in their racism. And all the things that he's saying about deporting immigrants, of um, surveilling people of Arabic descent or Muslims, Um, All those things are currently being practiced. And Hillary has actually been the secretary of state, has actually ran for the elections. And so she's actually doing a lot of the things that Trump is only speaking about. So a lot of people focus on Trump being the problem. But Hillary has actually held and currently holds the institutional power within the state of the ruling class to do, you know, she has been deporting migrant children. She has been behind um, bombing and and sabotaging uh, Syria and other countries. So it's just, if you look at institutional power, um, Trump is, yeah, maybe a foil, but he's a reality TV star. Of course, he's saying all that stuff and he knows how to get viewers and he knows how to market himself to get viewers, which is what the election needs to thrive. You need viewers. But Hillary's actually positionally the one that has been carrying out all the stuff that Trump is just saying in namesake only so far, except he does have a large following of like a fascist resurgence movement following him. And let's not forget that Hillary Clinton in the 2008 campaign against then Senator Barack Obama was the one who started the birther campaign and who was really pushing the Islamic phobic um, rhetoric around his candidacy and his middle name and um, him being tied to terrorism. Remember, like, he piles around with terrorists and she set ground for what then the Republicans were able to, once um, McCain got the nomination, be able to run with. So she really laid the ground for Trump's campaign back in 2008. And for some reason, she that's kind of like forgotten or forgiven or um, erased from analysis on the campaign. But let's be honest, Hillary is as much as an Islamophobic person um, and fearmonger as Trump is. She's a little more quiet about that now in this race. But again, like her actions have showed that is just not what she has shown herself to be. I think a lot of things in the election are kind of being... Big stories, you know, you think like things that would end the election have been getting silenced or not really picked up by the media. Trump raping a 13-year-old or the DNC email leak. This, it's kind of jarring that in November, either way, if it's Trump or Clinton, we will have a rapist in the White House. It may not be the first time, but we will have either Bill Clinton or Trump. And that's like a known thing. You know, like it's known that Bill Clinton has been a rapist since Oxford and that Hillary Clinton has not only like excused his actions, but actually like victim blamed the women who have accused and tried to silence the women. We have such horrible options that there's nothing that could destroy either one of the campaign. It's just like, yes, you're going to get one of these like horrible people. And that's just that's just where our country is right now. And you look at what's happening in the UK with the Brexit and, you know, Britain leaving the EU, 
And there's so many people who are just unhappy with this decision. And a lot of people who voted for it didn't really realize what they were voting for, what the consequences of it would be. And you just think about it. We have no control over our lives. We have very little control on the way of, like, what we decide what we want to do. You know, the Supreme Court the other day decides that DAPA is not going to be allowed to continue. So you have undocumented families just basically being toyed with by this country. One day it's, oh, yeah, you may be able to get more access. And the next day is, no, it's going to be taken away from you. Always living with the fear that whatever rights are given to you can be taken with you. And that's the problem with reformism and with going through with trying to make policy changes is because it can always be taken away. And there is no real safety in it. And the reality is that we do need something that is core changing that really gets down to the roots because things are only getting worse. And the resistance, or I wouldn't even say the resistance, the dissent has been successfully co-opted with them back to the DNC. And the DNC is trying to rebrand themselves as this like great new party. They've had their sit-in, they're singing We Shall Overcome, and all this political spectral BS. And then you have Bernie Sanders in New York saying, oh, well, I guess we can change the Democratic Party. Why are we going to waste our time trying to change a party that has shown ourselves like what it is? How many times are we going to do this? How many times are people going to have faith in these leaders for them only to do exactly what they always had destined to do, to bring you back into the controlled politics, to take away any sort of energy away from the movement? And they succeeded. They have from Occupy to Black Lives Matter to now, they have succeeded. Yeah, I want to call out this really manipulative use of the term political revolution by the Bernie Sanders brigade. Uh, The Burners, the Bernie bros, all of you, (laughs) all of you out there. Just how manipulative it is to kind of recognize that there are trends of dissent um, against the Democratic Party or, um, you know, of politics as usual or money in politics, kind of like the dull things where we're talking about, like, what can we reform to make the process more accessible? Meanwhile, we still don't, again, we don't vote on war. Um, we don't vote on the things that actually, we don't get to vote that the majority of the budget of the of the United States budget goes towards uh, militarization and violent extremism by the state, essentially, overseas. Here, even though there are all these candidates marketing themselves to you, we still have, you know, unaccountable police brutality. There's still police executions happening. Um, And so day after day, we wake up to these horrible news of what's happening to communities to by by people in power. And a lot of the times the perpetrator is people in power and they get a pass. And so but we're still considered and pressured to have faith in this, you know, electoral system, this hierarchy, even though like the Democratic National Convention, like talking about building a wall is going to build a wall around the Democratic National Convention to keep out any dissenters. Um, and so they're, they're doing this at the same time while, you know, calling into question the rhetoric of the Trump campaign. And it's just it's really frustrating because I don't know. I think there are a lot of youth that are getting swept up in the Bernie energy and are believing him and his rhetoric when he talks real nice and says that he's here to you know, have a political revolution. And so I just want to call into question, like, what does that actually mean to have a revolution And, you know, we've talked a lot about how, like, it's a process, but I think, and it's ongoing, and it isn't just, like, one event or a destination, but it's also, like, an overturning. 
what Bernie is talking about is reform at the basic level. He's saying, oh, let's amass a lot of people and let's divert all of our energy, attention and resources away from your communities and your struggles and what's happening into reforming the Democratic Party and re-legitimizing the Democratic Party. One of his speeches was basically telling people that they should use all this energy to go beyond him and to run for local office and to oust local politicians. And I'm just asking, like, this is a narrative we have heard over and over and over again. And, like, what does it mean when, like, okay, so a few of you run and become, you know, get a, a nominal position somewhere lower in the hierarchy, you get some nominal power. But what does this do to, like, change the structure that we're in to begin with, the lack of participation, the lack of input, the lack of control, these bodies and these hierarchies like the police commission that have absolutely no teeth that we continuously go to to ask for them to do something. Um, I guess I just passed a decree that police have to be more compassionate when dealing with the homeless. But what does that mean to compassionately, continuously harass and arrest and detain the homeless? And that's the thing with reform is it's always about going back to the structure and being like, how can we make this structure better? I'm asking, like, can we look at options outside of this structure? Uh, why? And I think that, you know, Hillary, if Hillary loses, which I don't even know if that'll happen, a lot of people will look back and blame people for not believing Hillary instead of blaming the structure itself. And I just think that's what keeps happening. I think uh, pe things don't go people's way. And so they use institutional logic and they are essentially, you know, everyone's trying to recruit others to vote for this election, not knowing that over 45 percent of the population does not vote because they know that, you know, either way they're getting a corrupt politician. And I think that there's a lot of resignation amongst people who live here specifically to accept that we're always going to get a level of brutality, a level of corruption from the president that is going to be elected. Can we stop accepting that? Because and if you are that person who's saying, I have to exercise my privilege to vote for Hillary because we can't have Trump, because we have to stop Trump. Like, why is voting the only way you're going to stop Trump? Like, why is voting for Hillary, voting for another neoliberal? So what we have right now is either white supremacist fascism or like white feminist supremacist fascism, really, is the directions, the splits that I see happening. So, like, why aren't there more practical, direct means that you that we can take to stop Trump? Like, if stopping Trump is the goal, then, like, let's stop Trump directly, especially for people with, like, a lot of institutional privilege who aren't going to feel the effects of his violent rhetoric, who aren't going to be targeted by the mobs that he's rallying. Why is an indirect action, like voting for someone, seen as an adequate measure response to someone, like, a, a threat of, like, a cult leader like Trump? I also feel like there's just, like, a lack of idea of responses. They've been so successful at repression that people have been so disempowered and they've been taught that this is the only way to flex your power. And it is the most convenient way to pretend to flex your power, right? All you have to do is go into a voting booth, vote, and then you're done with it. You wash your hands of it. You don't have to worry about cops. You don't have to worry about jail. Um, you don't have to worry about being hurt or anything like that in the short term. People do what's convenient. People do what's easy. And there's no room to talk about, you know, okay, so, hey, this way that we've been governing ourselves, it's not really working. Can we have conversations on changing that? And then who gets to have those conversations? The people who are elected in power? And even if you do get people who are, I don't even know what to call them, but like, say, like progressive or radical who then go into office, years down the line, they'll end up hosting a sit-in 
singing We Shall Overcome and reading letters from Birmingham because, you know, what happens to people when they stay in office? You've got to hold the power. You've got to hold the job. You've got to do whatever you do to keep your position. And so people get corrupted by the office. You know, it's just what happens. To think that the only way to change is for us to empower someone else and hope that they're going to follow through. It's just, it's not a really, when you think about it, it just doesn't make sense. Like our whole political process doesn't really make sense. There is like a level of like apathy that I feel like frustrated with. And I feel like it's just, like I understand where it comes from. Like it comes from being like frustrated with the process, feeling overwhelmed and like disempowered. And then through that, there has been cynicism because it's, oh yeah, well like, you know, you guys were stupid forever believing in the process, like, of course, like, it doesn't work, da, da, da. but then no one does anything. There has to be something done, right? Like, there has to be an action. There has to be a movement working. We don't want any more presidents. If we don't want Hillary to be our president, then, like, we need to be working on no longer having elections. And, like, how do you do that? I have no idea. I don't even know where to begin. But, like, I would like conversations on that. I would love conversations to begin on how do we stop elections from happening if we're not interested in elections. And maybe they're happening, but maybe I'm just not a part of it. I would love to hear more. But I do feel like the side of those who do not want, there does need to be something to be done because these are our lives. It's not just going to happen on its own. I always feel split in who I'm talking to. Like, am I in, in, in writing and anything is um, reaching out to people who are already disillusioned, disempowered, who are, you know, frustrated and already agree that, like, the structure isn't going to ever represent us, not that it doesn't represent us now and we need to get representation, but that it's never going to. And then I'm split with the people who are still kind of, like, hanging on the edge of it, and I'm just always confused at who I'm talking to, um, especially on the radio because there's so many different people. But I think a lot of folks who might consider that, like, oh, we can't stop electing people, have internalized this idea that, like, we have a democracy and we don't have a democracy here. And so I think um, the United States, you know, is a regime. That's a word they like to use for other countries that they target. But the United States is an authoritarian regime. And so first, you know, operate from the understanding that this is not a democracy, no matter how well they market it to you. And then for the second group of folks who I think, yeah, I, I, I feel that too, like, I'm getting really frustrated because I'm like, where are the conversations on alternatives to electoralism? Like, where are the conversations where we're like talking from starting from a place of we don't electoralism is a hierarchical system and it's only ever led to more authoritarianism, more power for the state, more wars. Um, And so if we are looking for another way, where are those conversations happening? Are they happening? I'm not sure because I feel like a lot of people are just kind of silently watching. I know I have taken that tactic too. Like I I comment every now and then, but it makes me feel, I feel like a political pundit when I talk <laughs> about the elections and so I avoid it, you know? <laughs> but, um, uh, but I also like silently watch because to comment on everything that becomes mainstream popular political is, is really frustrating. It's really, it feels reactive to me sometimes. So like where can we start from a place of we don't consent to this, we don't want this. And like, yeah, I think there is going to be some work that has to be done in terms of bridging the gaps between those people who do think this is a democracy that needs to be participated in, between those of us who are like, this is this never was a democracy, this is actually fascism. And uh, participation is welcome, but it doesn't have to be, we don't have to be working for the state. Why are we working for elections? Why are we campaigning for elections? Why are we fundraising for elections? 
why aren't we diverting energy towards solutions ourselves? Why aren't we building autonomous solutions? Like, why are we voting for someone to fix housing instead of fixing housing? And I know that there's not, that's wishful thinking. We don't have a lot of resources, but clearly we have enough resources to elect people and to electioneer. So really that's, it's a misuse of resources and power really to elect and give careers to people. It's interesting because they're using the whole Brexit thing as an anti-change from the norm of politics. The fact that UK decided to separate itself from the EU is going to be like sort of like why we need to just keep things the same because any sort of change of that is some right-wing fascist tool, which it is, right? I mean, that, that was the reason why they did it. In America, if we were to no longer have a centralized state here, it would turn into a right-wing control. You would have militias, and then you would also have gangs, and you would have different forms of patriarchy would be fighting against each other, all who are weaponized. So it's like, what does me as an autonomous person who just wants to live my life do and wants to be able to freely travel the world without worrying about borders or passports or citizenships? How do we just live? Minus the people with, like, all the weapons and who want to control the power. Because the power vacuum will be filled. And that's the thing, too. Even if it's not the right wing, then it's going to be the leftists who are statists and who think that, like, they should be in control and they should direct and they should lead. Someone's going to want to be in control. Someone's always going to want to be in control of my life. Then there's just no hope. And I think that's just a reality. <laughs> and we're reaching where we get. I feel like this is this is the place. Um, yeah. I feel like this is a mountain and, like, you can, I, I can't see over it. I think I made a similar metaphor last time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so a couple things come to mind. There's a decision that is made. I think you said this at another show, like, the contract's been broken. The social contract has been broken. The state does not hold up their end of the deal. However, people keep st- still keep organizing for the state, fundraising for the state, uh, defending the state. And so I think the shift is it's a failed state. So what's the alternative to the failed state? And maybe we should do a show on that. If the United States is a failed state, you know, what what's the alternative to that? And I think there are some strategies, some leftist strategies that could be gone over and also criticized. Because like you said, there are left authoritarians that would love to seize the state and they would they would say communism is what what they'll enact, you know, um, as an alternative to this state, which is, in my opinion, like a white supremacist capitalist hierarchy. It would be interesting to kind of go over what socialist strategies are, because Bernie, in my opinion, is a socialist in rhetoric only. OK, cool. Maybe he gets some kudos for making the world the word mainstream. Socialist strategies for change are not just organizing a base and, and getting a president elected. There's like strategies that you could replace the state, the ruling class with a workers party. And I have my concerns about these strategies, but just to illuminate that there are strategies for revolution out there that are not for saving the failed state. So we have to decide to stop putting our energy into redeeming this structure and instead go all in and be like, no, because a lot of people don't have a choice really. And in terms of, like, wanting to be an autonomous being, um, not to romanticize the Zapatistas, but what they did was amazing in terms of taking time with their community to sit and talk and listen and examine and iron out everything as participatory on all levels 
everything that that community might want, and then rise in self-defense and split off and create an autonomous zone, split off from the state of Mexico. Because I do think that if there is a power vacuum in the state, who is the most organized? It's going to be right-wing supremacists, fascists. It's going to be people who are armed. There is no uh, centralized state. It'll still be white supremacist hierarchy, but it'll be a less organized, more multi-headed, multi-dimensional being. And when I think of the state being failed and us actually removing the centralized authority, I think of a civil war. And I think that's worth really, really talking about. Um, and then I also like the idea of autonomous zones. You know, I think if we can at least create autonomous zones and defend them and slowly chip away and, and dissolve the state, um, that's also a strategy. But there are many strategies that we should talk about. When you bring up failed state, it just reminds me of Mexico. We can look at what's happening in Mexico and see that as like our future. How the repression's happening right there now in like Chihuahua, Oaxaca. You can see, you know, and we're funding it, right? Like we've militarized their police and still are. I also look at Gaza and Palestine, Israeli tactics and the way they have used to repress people. Um, for what we can expect. There are things that can be done, not to talk too much about the gun control, but I'm torn because it's like, honestly, I don't like anyone having a gun. I don't think anyone should have guns. But I feel like that cat's out of the bag. It's kind of like the war on drugs. You can't say there's going to be no more drugs no matter how much you try to fight it, no matter how much you're going to try to take it. There's going to be drugs. There's going to be guns. The state is just going to make it increasingly hard for people, for individuals who would use it in resistance to be able to have it. And that's why, like, these terrorist lists are so important because it's who gets put on that list? Who's on that list now? People don't even know. Ends up being people with Arabic names. But it also will include leftist-leaning people who speak out about the government. So in a country where everyone's armed, and the inevitable will be many wars on many fronts, on many levels. I mean, just look at California and Southern California. Orange County is its own white supremacist haven. And it's next door. And so I think about if we were to have an autonomous area in L.A., who are we surrounded by? Because then Ventura, the IE, we're surrounded by, like, organized, highly weaponized groups of white militias. I think the means of the factories will have to be reclaimed in every sense. This gun control bill really has me, had me really riled up this week because... I just feel like there's a couple things like it it's a commentary on how desperate people are for policy change that literally the first you know since this horrible shooting which I think a lot of like misogyny, trans misogyny and queer phobia is and and heteropatriarchy a lot of the mass shootings that happen are from men is being overlooked um in favor of uh more islamophobia and so I feel like the fact that this bill is coming out of what recently happened in Orlando is really telling because um, gun control disproportionately affects communities of color and has always. And this country was created through gun violence. It's just really selective. These watch lists, it's just out of this world to me that I remember the post 9-11 like, fear-mongering like it was yesterday. It was actually really formative to my political ideas because it was just so ridiculous to me as a child to see the rhetoric and the fear-mongering and the Islamophobia and the racism that came out of 9-11. And these watch lists came out of that. And at the time, we had 
uh, Bush as a president. And so the liberals were really, really silenced, but they were speaking out against these watch lists. And so I, I was like making a, a really sad, cynical joke about how progress, there is no progress in America. Uh, there's only progressive fascism. Progress is Democrats trying to pass a bill that they were against 10 years ago. That's what we have is like you mentioned earlier is like policy change can always be taken away. I think that's actually part of the gimmick of policy change. It's a give and it's a take and it's a give and it's a take and it's a back and forth. And it's 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 never progressive. It's always regressive. And then they give you a little back. But you're never actually gaining more. Watch lists, terror watch lists were something that uh, apparently the the Democratic Party was against 10 years ago. And now they're not even talking about that. They're just trying to pass a gun control bill. And like, it's irresponsible to even call it a terror watch list because no one has been convicted. These people that have been profiled and put on these lists haven't been given a trial, have never been convicted of anything. It's like the California gang injunctions. Uh, the only way you get on a gang injunction in California is if a cop sees you and profiles you and fills out a little card called, oh, I can't remember what it's called, it's some, some sort of identification intake card automatically without any accountability you're put into a, a California gang database and so youth of color just get consistently put in these gang databases and criminalized and then when they do get charged with anything it gets magnified the charges get excuse me you get extra added charges added because you're in this database with no accountability so and we know that the United States government has a kill list, the kill matrix. And it's like also it's like when we make lists, they're considered hit lists. But when the state makes lists, it's considered a watch list. Um, but they're actually the ones, the state, the government is the ones with the means to act and the access to actually, you know, destroy entire communities. And, and they continue doing that. I have a whole lot of feelings about gun reform, but it makes more sense to make restrictions on gun buying than to make a list where like you get profiled onto the list and then you can't buy the guns. Some of the things I get, like people are saying, if you've been convicted of domestic violence, but if you're gonna say this unaccountable government watch list means you don't get weapons, like there's no accountability. And that's where it's like due process and, and your rights, quote unquote, don't apply when you're criminalized and particularly for non-white folks who are criminalized and put on these lists. And there's a whole industry in counterterrorism that is extremely racist. And I did wanna just mention too for the RNC, FBI has been going around to various, I guess, known activists in the community and basically asking them what their intentions are for the convention and protesting, basically trying to like fairmonger and snitch out and see who's willing to snitch. To me, I'm curious, like, how did they know who to go to? Because I know in L.A., before the Zimmerman conviction was announced, they went to local community leaders and organizations to just discuss and prepare for it. So I'm wondering who helped them know where to go to, but also how that's just sort of normalized that FBI can go and begin to like fearmonger groups who will try to practice and dissent regarding the upcoming elections. And the DNC does this too, just as equally as the RNC does. It really destroys the idea of any of these rights that we've been taught that we are supposed to have. I've been thinking about the election a lot as Santa Claus. When you tell people when you're a kid, you're like, there's no such thing as Santa Claus, and they don't believe you. You're like, no, really, your parents are the one buying you the present. And it's not until they find the Toys R Us receipt in the present that they realize that you were right and that their parents have been lying to them the whole time. 
But still, like, collectively, the world kind of goes along with it. You know, everyone pretends that this is, like, what happens. And in the same way that, like, Easter happened in March this year. But we're kind of just going on with this election knowing it's not working. And we're just going on with these systems knowing that they're hurting us. And hopefully things start to happen so that we're preparing ourselves more. I think preparedness for the outcome is needed either way, whether it's a a Hillary or a Trump presidency or, you know, just because preparedness is needed to continue resistance and to really, like, I think about, like, what would serious resistance be? Like, serious, seriously. (laughs) 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 And then also part of me is is hopeless. I'm a little hopeless right now. I'm... I don't know. I don't know what to do. I also kind of feel like it's too far gone for this election and that it's really how do we prepare for next election? Like we got four years. Like, let's get prepared and really make it count. And let's um, like stopping the elections. I think it's a it's a medium. It's a goal to highlight how ineffective um, elections are and how how this democracy doesn't exist and how this is a failed state. The end goal isn't just for me to stop the election, but Elections are when people come out of the woodwork and when uh, when when the state basically assembles people to legitimize it, to applaud it. Everyone's out here like clap, clap, clap. This person got elected. Woo. We're celebrating. I'm like, I'm probably going to be in a bar on Election Day, like (laughs) drinking myself into a puddle because and then I was like, I don't know if I want to do that because that's where like all the people are going to be out like talking about elections. (laughs) I know. I don't feel like we're prepared to do anything effective to sabotage the election right now because a lot of people are out there organizing and protesting against Trump, but not against, you know, elections and not not against the United States framework of violence and domination. So what can we do? A couple of years ago, we had a, a conversation on between socialists, communists and anarchists on elections. And it was interesting to kind of put all those viewpoints right next to each other. Um, and then we also did a workshop on um, direct action versus voting. Um, and a lot of people were upset because they were like, you can do both together. And I was like, yeah, but then you kind of neutralize the effectiveness of your direct action because you're just trying to gain a concession. But there are conversations that we can have. Um, but I don't think conversations are enough. But I do think they're part of the process. It's stuck in the conversation. Yeah. And then it gets sabotaged, even if you try to do an action. And then it gets circular and circular, and yeah. then everyone has to be friends. I think. Yeah. Because basically everyone in the world right now is at the point where they should be saying they reject their government or their the government's right to have any sort of power, and they no longer see them as legitimate bodies of power. Um, I think everyone should do that. I think the world should do that together. I think we should all delegitimize our state, forget all the debt. Economy's gone. Yeah, the it's debt's bad. Gone. Let's throw just, that in the trash. You know, and then strike, reclaim Strikes. all their wealth, take back the land, overthrow the power, and unite! <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I appreciate how much excitement was in that. <laughs> oh, it'd be funny to listen to shows like two years ago, because they were probably really excited and optimistic and like... We just need this, this, and we're going to get serious, blah, blah, blah. And then now it's just like, oh, well, we're effed. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think about that sometimes because I think there was more continuous, like, fluid action happening. And, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't all get along, but we had some overlap in terms of having each other's back, like, in the street or when it came to police or when it came to resistance. Um, 
Although one thing I do remember is that even when you are the people that are like taking the action and agitating and disrupting, it's not just the state. It's always the people around you that make you feel like crap. <laughs> people around you that, yeah, it's it's really complex because repression comes in so many forms. Um, so dis- I'm not like hopeless without a reason. Um. <laughs> I want like a movement of introverts. <laughs> you know, that's beautiful. <laughs> you know, we just have like a Tumblr page, and, like we'll go mess things up. And I actually think that would be a good strategic security culture approach because not too many people should know what you're doing or mm-hmm. should know your long history. Collaborating with affinity groups on stuff like that direct for a long time, that's just a lot of people who know what you've been doing for a while. You yeah, know? switch up those affinity groups. But then for the introverts who don't even have affinity groups, I don't know. It's just, yeah, you know, drink. <laughs> drink and numb yourself to the end of the world. Watch it from a pretty view. I'm, like, in a period of waiting. You know, talk, We're talking about waves. I'm in a period of waiting. Um, and unfortunately, like, it takes, like disappointment for people to to look at the strategies that are well first realize these aren't our strategies these elections they're not from us they're kind of we inherit them they're given to us we're coerced to participate in them and then through participating they become they continuously are reinstitutionalized and revalidated yeah i'm just like kind of waiting for like people to be disappointed more people to be disappointed um, because there's fresh energy with fresh disappointment. And, like, I've been disappointed for a long time now. I guess it's not that long. I'm not that. Occupy 2.0. Let's do it. Okay, November 7th. <laughs> Everyone go to your city hall. Bring out your your camping gear and your tents. And we're going to stay there. We won't be there. Until <laughs> the government listens to our freedom and Citizen United is overturned and we can win back our democracy. I'm pretty sure this is self-trolling. <laughs> so. But I like the idea of, um, you know, changing how we utilize the Internet to organize because we really shouldn't be putting all these like, – like, I can't – people don't believe me when I say I can't make Facebook invites for, yeah. for events anymore. Like, I can do aquaponics workshops. Yeah. <laughs> if I do anything else, like – like, people don't believe me. You just end up being burnt, you know, Yeah. if you're super open about it. So going forward, I would say don't be super open about it, you know. <laughs> and I really want to – I think we should do a show on that. We've talked about it before, introverted, like, or, like – how how being introverted relates to organizing culture. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think organizing culture, as I learned it and like tried to deconstruct it and challenge it, it actually magnified my introversion. It caused me to become way more introverted because um, organizing is very much about social capital. And you have to, I felt like, you know, you have to make yourself open <sighs> to meeting so many people and like it makes you less of like your own being and more of like a public resource mm-hmm. where like lines of consent get blurred because you can't always feel like you can't talk to people or like you just want to be by yourself because people are constantly coming up to you or whatever and there's ways to interrupt that and you know obviously decentralize roles and like power and like not take on professional careers like in terms of like always being that go-to person but public movement building like is does cause anxiety and I, I think there is something to be said about an overlap of of people who want to see the world change that do have a lot of anxiety and are are you know have developed or are introverted and the relationship between that because I think we're also like sometimes very sensitive and empathetic and also can um you know read energy and situations 
And I think that's a skill, but that can also be really hard in large groups of people, uh, which public movement building is kind of about getting large groups of people together. Do you guys, the listeners out there, get annoyed when we start talking about, like, our lack of hope for the future? I wonder. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, no, I wonder. I wonder if they're like, because do they still have hope? Because you're not really supposed to say this stuff. You no, know what I mean? Like, you're supposed to always maintain, like, a positive, upbeat yeah, trajectory. Because, you know, the idea is it works in the favor of the state, right? But I kind of feel like we're supposed to be honest. I think when we pretend there is a movement right now, um, at least here in America, it hurts us because then we're not acknowledging the fact that, like, look, we're kind of stagnant right now and we successfully got co-opted. That needs to be acknowledged and recognized so that we cannot get co-opted next time. And, yeah, these the tactics aren't working. And so if people like me, like if I'm not going to be involved it's because I'm not going to be involved in stuff that I know is not going to work. I'm not just going to mm-hmm. go to action to go to action so I can, like, get caught up and arrested. Like, it's not going to go down like that. So, but I am curious to people's ideas and, you know, we have to do a, maybe we'll have a conversation like this shorter and people can call in with their thoughts. Because I feel sometimes a responsibility, like, even on Facebook or social media to not always put my hopeless thoughts I feel like I I feel like I have to censor myself because Mm -hmm. if you make a lot of political commentary like that's one thing but if you start saying like like I I posted a status like yesterday that was like y'all like I really don't see any collective resistance happening anytime soon because people look how thrilled people are for the sit-in like it's like symbolic politicians and people are super thrilled about it and are like affirming it and it's like people just are so hungry for policy change or they just want they look at this hierarchy and want to see themselves in it you know and I just like if if it's like it's like that quick that it gains so much support without like really looking at what the policy says yeah it just makes me I'm disillusioned I'm disempowered I'm like and I felt weird sharing that too but you know I've gotten mixed results like someone was I asked someone once I was like do you think it's do you think we have a responsibility because I think in social media, we affect each other's um, emotions. Mm-hmm. Like there is like kind of a group space. I, I hesitate to say group think, but, you know, we can affect each other's moods through posting. So I sometimes do feel like, oh, I shouldn't post like my hopelessness. But I also feel like people do appreciate, some people do appreciate it because it's honest. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. Um, yeah. So you can tweet us your thoughts on the show at OnResistanceLA. Email us at OnResistanceRadio at gmail.com or message us on our Facebook, OnResistance. And let us know what your thoughts are just on things to show or whatever. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Um, If anyone considers themselves like autonomous leaning or abolitionist leaning and actually has you know, some analysis or is from um, Britain and wants to talk about what's going on up there, maybe hit us up. Mm. Great. Well, we'll see you guys next week unless there's a fun drive or some other show on. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks.